Canada and uh, the west of Ireland and Galway particularly have a lot uh, to share and Alcock and Brown when they tried their first transatlantic flight decided that instead of heading to Dublin or Shannon that Galway was the county that they needed to touch down in and I can understand totally why and Kathleen Villiers has written about this and Kathleen is an Irish historian uh, she's born here in Clifton in County Galway and she's written an, uh, six books numerous of which are about the area including some on Kymore Abbey and the famine. Uh, Kathleen thanks very much for taking the time to come and have a chat. Good to meet you. Um, we're going to talk about all Cock and Brown but I want to touch a little on the famine as well but all Cock and Brown first of all that this year I understand was a big year earlier on the year because there was commemorative Yes, so over the, the, in June we were commemorating the centenary yes. of the arrival of the plane here. Uh, it arrived on the 15th of June 1919, right. uh, having crossed the Atlantic from Newfoundland. So uh, it, it, when it arrived it was a big surprise, but as you say they were yes. aiming for Galway. But when they came in on the coast here there was a mist over the mountains and they knew they had arrived and la uh, reached land right. so that was the first delight for them but then when they saw the mountains they thought that there mightn't be they didn't know the height of the mountains of okay. the 12 bends and so they rather than risk uh, having a crash they uh, decided to look for somewhere to land okay. they saw the masts of the Marconi station which they would recognize for what they were and uh, they knew that if they arrived at the Marconi station they could get the message back to Canada that they had arrived safely and therefore succeeded and uh, took the prize of £10,000. Which was a lot of money. Oh, a huge amount of money. I think in today's terms it was more than Rory well, nearly as much as Rory McIlroy got for, for winning the <laughs> Probably, I'm not that up to date on golf. <laughs> but I think he got 10 or 11 million. Oh yes, I did hear that, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not sure if it went up to, if it was the, it the was equivalent to that. Yeah. But uh, the, the prize was for the first non-stop transatlantic mm -hmm. flight, lighter than air aircraft and under specific hours. But of course they made it in, in uh, 16 hours, 20, right. 27 minutes, I think it was. So who put up the, the money? No idea. I do, Lord Northcliffe, right. <laughs> the, um, the owner of the Daily Mail newspaper. Okay. And he was a sponsor for aviation um, records. You know, okay. this is the idea was to push aviation, advanced aviation. Okay. Uh, and so he was, he was, he was offering different prizes for different, and they were constantly extending and extending. You know, which was to prove the, that the, the airplanes could do it, but also that man could do it, that they right. could uh, fly for that length of time, like 16 hours through the night in extremely bad weather was quite an achievement. They would have had tailwinds because we tend to get tailwinds coming from yeah, that side. Exactly yeah. and that was why they were heading for Galway because that's where the winds would bring them in over that's right. what they were assuming but they got here bang on I mean they were they were coming in over Galway Bay that's what uh, Whitten Brown he was the navigator that's what he was aiming at coming okay. over Galway Bay okay. so they came a little north of that by coming in over Connemara. Now when you say he was the navigator of course they would have been relying very heavily on traditional at that time uh, would, which would have been more marine type 
navigational skills rather than aviation because it didn't exist. Yes, and they were just hoping for sights of uh, a certain alignment of stars and, and sights of the moon and all of that. And unfortunately, the weather was so bad they only got three readings. So it was what they called dead reckoning. They were going right. on dead reckoning and uh, most of the way. He was a brilliant navigator, though. And they were in a, a non-pressurized plane, so they couldn't really head up high enough to get above the clouds if there was bad weather. Off the top of my head, I can't remember how high they got up, but they were. They did go up to avoid bad weather, and uh, but then that they tried. They didn't actually break through. They were never able to break through. So when they came down. Um, they came down through bad weather again, and they went into a spin at one point. Okay. And they they had a very came very near an accident. They were just right. something like uh, 50 feet off the sea level by the time when they broke through the clouds. They saw where they were, and uh, Alcock righted the plane, and then he discovered that he was actually flying in the wrong direction at that point after righting the plane. So he turned it around again right. and headed for Europe. Now, in literally, they put Clifton on the map to some degree. Well, before that, even uh, Marconi had done that and in, again, in 1907. And as a Canadian connection as well. That is the Canadian connection as well. And uh, in 1907, the first commercial wireless fixed point to point. Up until then, you were talking uh, ship to shore and ship to ship. But this was the first fixed point to point from Europe to the Americas. And that was due to cable. That, b b prior, the cable was already in existence. This was this was a wireless. Okay. This was, yeah, and this was commercial messages that were now going to be able to send faster and cheaper than the cable had done. Because right. the cable went in down the Lynch Island. That's right. And yeah. then so the first wireless communication. Wireless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I had the pleasure in a previous career of uh, testing communications over satellite from Signal Hill in St John's, Newfoundland. All right. Well, that's of course where the where Alcock and Brown took off from from, from St John's. Yes. And uh, but the Marconi um, sister station to the one at Derry Gimlet, Clifton, the sister station was in, in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. Right. So right. Right. Cape Breton. Cape Breton. Is that what you, you say? Cape Breton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a bit like we say Newfoundland, and you say Newfoundland. Yes. It's, it's <laughs> So then, as a result of that, and in the hundred years in the intervening period, of course, Edmund Clifton then was, both for Marconi and Alcock and Brown, was a, a point of reference. Yes, it was, and you would imagine that would have brought us a great deal of attention, but it didn't. In the beginning, it did. You know, right. when these stories broke, we were all over the front page of leading newspapers all over the world when Alcock and Brown arrived. But after that, uh, Alcock and Brown were even forgotten, never mind the fact that they landed in Clifton. And um, so their story has been kind of overshadowed by, by other aviation stories after that. Right. So the, a lot of people don't even remember that Alcock and Brown were the first to make that. There is a Canadian traveling with us and we said, you know, who Alcock and Brown is, and she didn't. No. You see, that's, that is the truth. And it was the same with Clifton. We were conscious of the fact that we had this site yes. um, that had, had made history on two occasions. It was yeah. the, the site of history making. Um, but uh, efforts were made by the Chamber of Commerce on several times to try and, and um, heighten that in some way. Right. But it was only with this in, uh, the uh, Wild Atlantic and Way, it became a destination Indeed. stop on the Wild Atlantic Way. So that's brought an awful lot more uh, tours to the spot in And of course having the centenary uh, helps elevate the profile uh, yes. while the Wild Atlantic Way exists 
now that it has helped elevate that profile as well. Yes, and I think that the Chamber of Commerce continued in plan on continuing to highlight it so that it be, people would be aware of it when they come into the area. Now, Captain, you've done other work on, on particularly on the famine out around this area also, and the west of Ireland was very badly hit. Um, yes, Connemara was as badly hit as any other very western coastal region, principally because of these were very isolated districts and the populations tended to live along the coast. We didn't have a very good road structure, mm -hmm. so getting food to remote areas was a big problem um, during that period. And uh, the wonderful thing about the famine is that we have a huge amount of material on it, we have very right. detailed material on it, and it's possible to, to trace what happened and that the story becomes very obvious as you're reading through the documents. Right. That it was the fact that the people were in such a remote area that the food couldn't reach them, that they were totally dependent on the potato, they had no substitute, they weren't in the habit of having employment and having funds themselves in order to buy food. So it meant that, that once the first crop failure came in 1845, it was only a partial crop failure, but that affected the people. Right. And then we had a full failure in 46. Right. And then we had a we had a successful crop in '47, but so few people had sown the actual seed potatoes; they had eaten them. Right. Uh, it meant that it had no impact on the area, and right. that's why '47 is remembered as being uh, it's recorded as being the, the worst yeah. year. And then we had crop failure again in '48, and then right. in '49 in this district we had cholera. Right. So you know it went on. Because um, we were out on Inishir earlier on, and uh, when I was chatting out there, I was told us. The, while the blight had come to in this year in the Iron Islands, it didn't affect it in the same way because they had the fisheries. So obviously fishing was not as rich and as much part of the food source up here. It, it wasn't. The people were. It was a supplement to the food stock here. Right. It wasn't really looked as the primary source of food or the primary source or, or um, a good earner even. Right. Uh, the main reason was that the boats, the, the fish they were fishing at the time was the herring, and the herrings tended to desert the coast. Normally the herring would come right into the shore okay. and the people were in small light boats and they were able to just fish close to the shore. Okay. But in this case, uh, for some reason during the time of the famine, the herring seemed to move out so you had to go further out and uh, the people weren't in any fit state to take their boats out that far. Right. But also people were used to um, crop failure and periodically people were used to having uh, crop failure, you know, our, our times of scarcity. And the first thing they would do would, would um, pawn their tackle. Okay. And then the next year, things would probably be good, they'd and have a better crop and they'd get the tackle back out again. Back. So many people had already pawned their tackle. Right. And so they weren't able to get them back out because we didn't have a good crop okay. in the years afterwards. <coughs> Efforts were made by charitable organisations to, to encourage the people to go back out by setting up curing stations and by giving them a market for what they would catch and it, it wasn't very successful. Right. Partly because the people were already not in the best shape right. themselves physically at this stage, hadn't suffered so much. But also, they, when there was any kind of free food on offer, if there was any kind of soup kitchens or charitable food or, or government free rations, you knew that if you stood in line for free food, you were at the end of the line, you would get the food. But if you went out by sea, if you went out on the boat, you had no guarantee you were going to catch any fish. Right. So there was the certainty of food. Um, a few years ago, I attended a lecture, and um, I think it was by uh, Lady uh, Moffat, 
supers and jumpers. Yes. And it explained all that. I was fascinated about the, the story up around here and, and that. Yes, yes. It was a huge element of the famine in that uh, proselytizers moved in and tried to encourage the people to convert to the Protestant faith in, yeah. in exchange for food. And Kathleen, I know you have a, a tight schedule, so uh, what I want to do is thank you first of all for taking the time, but point to your website if anybody wants to find you, wants to get in touch with you, find your books, anything like that, where should they go? Well, it's www.connemaragirlpublications.com. Excellent. Thanks, Thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>